that, let's open our Bibles today to the book of Genesis, chapter 5, verse 1. So Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 5, verse 1. I want to pause what we've been talking about for a few weeks here at Hope. And this morning, I want to talk for a few minutes, and I want to have you think with me for a few minutes on the subject, revival. So how many of you have heard by now about the Asbury revival that happened at this little small Christian university in a tiny town in Kentucky? Several weeks ago, there's a very um, ordinary, um, nothing spectacular chapel service that happened in this little Christian school, and yet the chapel service never stopped. It was a very unremarkable morning, nothing spectacular, and yet for some reason on that particular morning when chapel ended, students remained. Several of them started praying, they continued to worship, and then more and more showed up, and before long, there were literally tens of thousands of people from all around the country and all around the world descending on this little town of 6,000 people, and it, it lasted for weeks. The chapel service never ended for weeks. Um, this last week, I attended a chapel service at APU, and the school, APU, flew the student body president from Asbury out to APU, and then the student body president from APU interviewed her, and the student body president from Asbury was delightful. She was so sweet and so normal, just a regular college student, but her life had been marked, and you could see that she had encountered something that had changed her life and put her life on an entirely new trajectory. I left as soon as the chapel started to break up. As soon as they started dismissing, I slipped out to go on with my day, but apparently that service didn't end. Um, it was close to a, almost midnight. I was sitting in our community hot tub going over reading or whatever, and I got a text from Andrew Barton. And he said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, chapel never ended today. And he sent me pictures at midnight and videos of pockets of students all over the APU campus worshiping, praying, and continuing with that moment. APU had a chapel service a few nights ago that continued all night long. And then Friday morning, they had chapel again, and then the students all disbanded for spring break. So we'll see where this goes. But it's been a pretty special thing to watch. And how many of you have seen the film, The Jesus Revolution? It's the movie that showcases the Jesus movement of the 1960s and 70s. And, and better yet, how many of you didn't just see the film that showcased the Jesus movement? How many of you experienced the Jesus movement? or you were impacted by the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. It's, it's, it's a, a pretty remarkable thing to be watching some special things happen and having the eyes of our country on some spots where God seems to be doing something pretty special. I'm going to comment on Asbury and the Jesus movement in a second, but what I really want to talk about this morning is you and I want to talk about the fact that the Christian message at its core is a message of revival. And I'll define that in just a second. It's a message of revival for every single area of human experience. 
So let's, let's start here today in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. The scripture says, This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the image and the likeness of God. And that, by the way, is one of the cornerstone understandings of the Christian faith. Human life is special. You are special. And this idea that every human life is special because every human is made in the image and the likeness of God, that becomes the framework that we use to view people through. The people that we love, the people that we struggle with, even the people that might view us as their enemies. When Jesus brought his Sermon on the Mount and he was telling people to pray for your enemies, it wasn't quite as revolutionary as people may have thought in the moment. The scripture has presented this idea from the very beginning, that there's something special and there's something sacred in humans. Well, verse 2 says, he created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. And there are some really interesting theories about how these early humans had such long lifespans and then why those lifespans began to to reduce. But regardless of how and why that was the case, verse 5 says, Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years and then he died. But look at verse 3 again. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. What happened in Adam's life prior to the birth of Seth? What did Adam and Eve live through together before the birth of this particular son? I know a lot of us know the story, so let's just quickly remember what this couple went through. Um, The scriptures tell us, first of all, that before Seth was born, sin entered the world. And sin, remember, is is a deviation from God's path. It's, It's walking away from the prescribed, designed way that humans were made to live. And when that happened, it damaged this archetype couple. Adam and Eve were the archetype of of humans, and they were damaged profoundly. Sin damaged their relationship with each other. You know, prior to sin coming into the world, there was no biblical record of accusation, suspicious, suspicion, blaming, judging someone else. Sin damaged their relationship with each other. Sin damaged their relationship with God. Prior to that deviation, The scripture says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. They had an unbroken, unfiltered relationship with God. Sin ruptured that. Now, it doesn't mean they never got it back again. It doesn't mean they didn't reconnect with God. Certainly they did. But trauma was always a part of their story after this. 
Sin damaged their innocence. Before the fall, the scripture says they were naked and unashamed. But after sin, it said their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. And that probably doesn't just mean they became aware of their nudity. What it means is that they became aware of what they had lost. And there was this sense of exposure and shame that they had never felt before. They went from being clothed in the presence and the glory of God to now they're being clothed in fig leaves and disguises and they're hiding. Um, Sin damaged their joy and their rewards. Childbearing, which was supposed to be the most incredible experience ever, was marked with pain and sometimes heartbreak. Adam's vocation was damaged. The earth itself became hard and unyielding. Um, Sin damaged their home. Listen to these words from the end of chapter 3. Verse 23, it says, So the Lord God had to banish him from the garden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That is a lot of loss. That's a lot of loss to process before the birth of Seth. But then it actually gets worse. So are you... Am I sinking you all today? Are we all, are we all just going through the floor? It, it gets worse. Chapter 4, verse 1, Adam made love to his wife. Well, that wasn't worse, but um, she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. And that was good. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Um, Some word scholars think that that language later doesn't mean like a few years later, but shortly after Cain was born, Abel came out. So it was possible that Cain and Abel were twins. But regardless, whether they were twins or not, um, there was trauma in the relationship. And there was a breakdown and there was a rupture that led to the first recorded murder in Scripture, a brother murdering his brother. And then verse 16 says that Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So with the killing of Abel, Adam and Eve lost two sons. One son died and the other son left. And then the rest of chapter 4 recounts the story of how other humans continued in the way of Cain, advancing anger, violence, murder, until trauma just spread through the entire human race. And then chapter 4 ends very similar to how it begins. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, and she named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And those words, in the middle of the trauma, in the middle of all of this loss that this couple had to live through, those words were pregnant with possibility. Those words were were packed with the hope of restoration or redemption. When all of humanity was unraveling, falling apart, going apart at the seams, people began to call on the name of the Lord, not unlike those times 
in church and human history, when people cried out to God in the middle of difficult times and revivals occurred. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So just quick summary. In the 130 years before Seth was born, Adam and Eve lost the immediacy of God's presence. They lost trust in each other. They lost a sense of purpose and vocation. They lost paradise. They, they lost one son and they said goodbye to another son. And all of that loss, here, focus in with me on this. All of that loss makes these words so powerful. Adam lived 130 years. You know, that was not a small thing for Adam and Eve to stay alive after everything that they had lived through in those 130 years. It's probably not a small thing that you have kept your faith alive and that you've kept your hope alive in light of some of the things that you've lived through. That the heart of this message today is found right here in this, the definition of that word lived. Adam lived. Uh, I'll show you the definition up here. It's a, the Hebrew word hayah. Sounds like a Chuck Norris roundhouse kick or something. Hayah. It means to be alive, to stay alive, which again, not always a small task. And the word means to live again. Adam lived. The word means that Adam lived and died in Eden, and then he began to live again. The word means to vivify or to quicken, or the word means to revive. The synonym for this word live is the word revival. Revival is a noun. Revive is the verb. And the Christian message is a message of revival. When the Christian story begins to work in a person's life, dead things start coming back to life. When the Christian story starts to work in a person's life, dead hopes and dreams can fan back into flames again. Dead purpose can be reimagined. Dead relationships can start to feel a little bit of love again. Dead, dead promises can start to actually happen in a person's life. Um, think about Jesus' ministry. Everywhere he went, dead things came back to life again. Everywhere he went, bodies snapped back into proper alignment again. Demons stopped harassing people. Hungry people were fed. Disillusioned people found a purpose. So when we call a movement, like what's happening in Asbury, or like the Jesus movement, when we call these things revivals, what we're really saying is we're recognizing a moment where there's a hyper-concentrated um, spot where we see what is always happening in the Christian faith. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who seeks God will find him. It doesn't mean we'll find an answer to every problem in our life. It means we'll find life. 
These revivals that happen out there, they're hyper-concentrations of what is always happening in relationship with Jesus. So I have a very simple message and a simple question. Where do you need revival today? See, you look pretty good to me this morning. But, but if we were sitting one-on-one and if we got super honest, there's probably a place in all of our lives where things feel a little bit dead and we need something to come back to life. You know, death feels pretty final on this side of eternity, doesn't it? But you know, the genius of the Christian story is not the fact that God can do miracles. That's not what makes the Christian message this incredible story. In fact, the the fact that God can do miracles isn't even that big of a deal when you think about our universe. When you think about just the fact that this universe is here, somebody hung earth in outer space. Something or someone sparked a big bang that sent light hurtling through the universe and spun galaxies and solar systems and planets and stars into motion. Uh, The fact that God can do a miracle is not even that big of a deal. The genius of the Christian story isn't even just Jesus' teachings. Although his teachings are so brilliant, they're they're so sublime, is the word they use to describe it, that everybody knows if the world lived his teachings, the world would change for the better. But everybody despairs because how do we ever actually live that way? His teaching was so genius, but that's not even the true genius of the Christian story. And the genius of the Christian story, it's not even the way Jesus treated people. Even though everywhere he went, he elevated people, and he removed shame, and he empowered people. The genius of the Christian story is found in what the Apostle Paul called Christ crucified. The genius of the Christian story, in 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus is our revelation of God. Jesus shows us God. So that tells us several things. It tells us that God is Christ-like. And if God is Christ-like, God is good. And if God is Christ-like and good, God can be trusted. And if he can be trusted, he can be trusted in your life. But Jesus' supreme act when he was on earth was staying on a cross until death was defeated and then came back to life again. Remember what revival means. The climax of the Christian story was the revival that occurred in the middle of the night before the sun came up on Easter Sunday. Um, When when Jesus began to live again, that's our word, hayah. When Jesus began to live again, Death got an expiration date attached to it. Death, which was the ultimate and final enemy, became a temporary enemy. Death became, yes, it's still a horror, but it's a horror with an end date. And and it's not even as final as it once was for people that open their lives to Jesus. Death actually becomes a portal into an eternal kind of life. And listen, if we haven't thought of it this way, listen, you become a Christian when you believe in revival. Listen to Romans 10, verse 9. 
Paul said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's revival. Dead things being lifed again, you will be saved. It's, it's interesting when these things like Asbury happen, people start to wonder, well, is this actually a revival? Or, or do we call this an awakening? Or is this an outpouring? Or is this a real revival? And people tend to, well, I don't know if we should call this one a revival yet, but, but what's the definition of revival? It's dead things coming back to life again. When, when, when that young woman from Asbury was speaking at APU, she talked about students whose faith had come to life again. When those students worshiped and prayed around their clock, purpose and, and vision came to life in them. She, she was talking about how all of her peers and her whole generation, they're starting to say, Jesus, we are surrendering our life to you. We're surrendering our sexuality to you. We're surrendering the path of our future to you. That's revival language. And listen, that's happening in our generation. That's happening in young people today. If it's not happening for your young people, it's happening and it's contagious and it spreads and it will spread. It's revival that we're actually seeing in our day. And I want revival to happen here. I would love to have an outpouring of God's presence in this room that's so intense that we couldn't bear to leave, but we just roll out sleeping bags and we just stay here. I hope that happens. But listen, whether that happens or not, I want revival in your home. And I want revival in your mind and in your habits, in your character, in your relationships, and in your life, and I want them in mine too. Um, Saint Irenaeus was a church father from France in the 200s, second century, the 100s. And, and he famously said that the glory of God is mankind fully alive. It's one of my favorite quotes, and it's so true. Because God is glorified when people come back to life in him. So I want to end these simple thoughts today by just reading an Old Testament passage to you. I want to read a passage to you that you'll be familiar with. Many of you have read this before. It's one of the most vivid, gripping, revival passages in the major prophets from the Old Testament. It's a picture of revival. And it's a picture of a way that we can position ourselves to partner with what God might want to do. You, you can't conjure up a revival. Revival is always happening anytime we respond to Jesus. So you can live in a measure of revival, but you can't conjure up the concentration of it, but we can position ourselves to be partners with the revival that God wants to do in our lives or in our families. So this passage I want to read to you is from Ezekiel chapter 37. It's the passage about the valley of dry bones. And as you listen to these words, and again, these will be familiar to many of you, I want you to insert yourself into this text. So when Ezekiel starts talking and starts walking back and forth and prophesying some things, I want you to picture you doing that. When Ezekiel starts calling life into these dry bones, 
commanding them to hear the word of the Lord, I want you to think about the dry spots in your story, the dead spots that you just think nothing could ever live there again. So let's insert ourselves. Let's insert our loved ones. Let's insert this generation into the text. Um, I've been watching some of Jenny Allen's stuff with a little bit of the if gathering and then some of her experiences at Asbury. And she just was going off about what God wants to do in Gen Z, that there's something special in this young generation. There's something special about young people pushing back against trivia and shallowness and the busyness and being attached to a screen and saying there is something more. God is not done working in our country. He's not done working in the generations. So let's just insert all of that into the text. Ezekiel, the prophet, is speaking. And he said, the hand of the Lord was on me. And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord. And he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you. I will make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh covered them, skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. That's revival. Then you will be my people. You will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. For some, it means you're just going to keep on living. For others, it means you're going to stay alive. Even if you don't feel like you can. For others, it means you're going to live again. Listen, in your life, you are Ezekiel. You're not Jesus. You're not your savior. It doesn't all rest on you. You're not the source of the breath. But in the story of your life, you're the prophet. And if our board here at Hope started making unannounced house calls, I think there should be a pretty good chance that if they walked up to your house in the evening unannounced, they might see you pacing back and forth. 
prophesying to the breath, commanding life to come back into those dead places. It's one thing to say a prayer to God. We need to constantly be praying to God. But there are times in our life when God tells us to take a different posture. And I'm not so much saying, would you please send breath, dear God? I'm commanding breath. I'm prophesying to life. I'm ordering wind to come back into these places that need it. We can't generate a moment. But there are moments when God calls us to prophesy to speak the word of the Lord, to pace back and forth in your room, holding whatever the burden is that you're concerned about and commanding life to come back into that thing, commanding that thing to live. So I want us to do this. I want us to, to practice this. I want us to live it. And let's begin practicing this right now and let's do it every day of our life and let's be experiencers of and carriers of Christ's revival. Christ's revival.